This is a Broad Pods production. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Broad Radio. For you, by you. Broad Radio. Here for more. Oh my goodness. Hi there, Miv. How are you going? I'm great. I'm great. Nice to see you. Yes, my goodness. I Look, firstly, hello and welcome to Broad Radio. My name is Jo Stanley and today our co-host is the amazing Miv Warhurst and I will need to just explain that I'm at home joining remotely because my daughter uh, is unwell, so I'm here with her. Uh, and Miv, thank you for holding down the fort there. I love it. I'm doing nothing. I know nothing about tech. So I'm just sitting here watching everybody go about their business while I sit here like the queen that I am. (laughs) (laughs) You are very much a queen and that's exactly how you should be behaving. Well, the queen that they make me feel like, I should say. I don't think I'm a queen actually, but. Well, that's it. Well, you are though, darling. We're queen as in Q, Q, how do the ladies say it? The cool way? Q-W-E-N. Yeah. I have to explain also that my Labrador is a losing her mind over something so she's oh. barking crazily here so it's all happening it's all happening it feels um, like we... it feels like covid times again doesn't it with all this stuff going on it's really <laughs> true but i do want to acknowledge the incredible people behind the scenes who are working feverishly every week to uh get us on air and there's a lot of building broad radio behind the scenes that is taking what you see now to something much bigger. Um, But we have to acknowledge Beck and Sess and Olivia and Ro, who are all there getting us um, up and running each week. And, uh, yeah, here we are. And, um, Miff, you made it too. Last night you were uh, waiting for a play. How many times were you bumped coming back from Brisbane yesterday? I think I was bumped five times yesterday. So I was at the airport around about 3 o'clock for my um, 4.15 flight that it was 3.15 but got bumped and then it got bumped to, I don't know, 5.45 and then 7.15 and then back to 5.45. Oh, my gosh. It was a time. It was a time and it was chaos at the airport. I think a lot of flights had been bumped last week so there was lots of families coming back. I thought school holidays were over but no. Families coming back, kids crying over time. It's 11 o'clock at night and they're trying to get to the long-term car park. My heart was just going out to everybody because I felt terrible and I only had to look after myself. 
But all these poor little kids just holding on. You can see they're like hanging on to their mum and dads and or, you know, they're, they're whoever they're with, their, their parents and, and they're just oh, just wanting to give yeah. up on life. Um, but we all it felt the same. It is an absolute time. It's a time. And isn't this right now then that, you know, the madness there at the airport and what's happening, me at home and all of this, it's just really a snapshot of what's going on in the country. There's a lot that we're managing. Um, but here we are. And I'm really grateful to be speaking with you and having you join us on Broad Radio Miff. Thank you so much. Oh, Joe, it's always good to be here. Listen to Daisy in the background. Oh, <laughs> she's really happy. Oh my gosh, it's gonna be a fun show. Um, if a lot of the time our shows tend to fall into a bit of a theme, kind of by accident. Yeah. Um, and today is no different, in as much as I feel like this show sort of is around the themes of who we are and how we're informed by what has gone before us, but also who we choose to be based on the qualities that we embody in a lot of ways. And so today we're going to be starting our conversation with the very compassionate merchant of hope he's been described as, Con Carapanagetidis from the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. He'll be joining us first up, which is, he's an incredible person. I'm really looking forward to learning about what kind of drives him and, you know, the work that he does with refugee and asylum seekers in Australia. But then uh, we're also going to be joined by author and illustrator and creator of the fascinating book, Daughters of Melbourne, Marie Coote. And she's captured the history of NAM or Melbourne, as it's better known, um, and the unsung pioneer women who've made Melbourne what it is. So there's a lot of talk around sort of, you know, what's brought us to who we are today. And Miff, I'm fascinated on your perspective with that because for two reasons. One is you are writing your memoir. Oh, I know. Uh, a terrifying gig. I, I had no idea. I've heard people talk about this experience of writing a memoir before and I thought, oh, can do that that'll be fun and then you do it and you're like oh gosh <laughs> it's really um it's really an interesting experience to try and work out the things that that have I guess influenced you or, or made you who you are and then distilling it into book form I found it I found it quite overwhelming to be honest but I got there on Friday I handed in my my I guess you call it a manuscript that's what the professionals call mm -hmm. it handed it in and it's it's um off to be edited it'll come back I'll, I'll be able to make changes and things but it was just mm -hmm. nice to get the bulk of it done but the process was really interesting and I, I thought I had a theme that I was working on in that it's using music so so song particular songs as a step off point for memory but i found it was it was even hard to stick to that when it comes to to memoir because it's you're trying to work out how to tell this story that is your story that involves other people a lot of other people but also make it entertaining and enjoyable so it was there were a lot of, there were a lot more demands i think on on my creativity than perhaps having written before um I mm. had to face and 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 you're right, Joe. You 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 do you co do columns and 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 each week there's there's a different tale to tell. And I thought I'd approach the book like that, but I, it was really hard to narrow things down and be specific and yet tell a f whole story. Yeah, it was a really interesting. So is process. it is it your life story or is it sort of version like parts of like segments of your life or sort of like anecdotes and snippets of yeah, your life? Yeah, it's it's more it's a little bit memoir in that there's a there's a 
it, it, it goes from beginning to, to now, but mm. it's not really and then this happened and then this happened and then this happened. It's more just segments and I've, I've gone for hopefully the more fun segments There's because, you know, <laughs> I feel like after the last couple of years we need a bit of joy as well. Um, yes. So I, I've gone for some lots of fun stories, but, you know, there's some really tough stuff in there too, but that tough stuff mainly involves me. I haven't really delved into things that might involve other people or stories that I'm, I don't feel qualified to tell at this point in my life. Um, so yeah, it's, it's more of a, more of a, an enjoyable romp, I guess you could say through the, the weirdness and the, and the fabulousness that has been my life. Yeah. Oh, I can't wait to read it. I certainly have, I have ambitions of writing a memoir and I suppose my thing is what is of use to people? Like yes. why would people want to hear my story? How can I make it something that actually isn't just me indulgently <laughs> telling? And another thing happened about me that was so interesting. You know oh, I what know. I mean? I'm, like I'm I so wanted to actually have an impact. Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing when you're writing it, you're like, is this even valuable to anybody in telling this? Is it valuable? Am I learning anything? Am I sharing the right things? Is my story even interesting? It's I've gone through all the emotions when it's come to that. And in the end, I think what what I came to was it's it's been a lovely exercise, and I've I I will I will love to have it. And I think if anyone just wants to find out, I guess how if if it's helpful to anyone, how I how I I, I am where I am at this point in my life and, and things that I've grappled with in my life and how I've overcome them. I, I think hopefully that might be helpful to some people and also just to give them a bit of a laugh, hopefully, as well. I think it absolutely <laughs> is helpful. I think people love you, Miff. I think people are going to be like, yes, I want to know, you know, a little bit more about what makes you tick but also take away, oh, well, you know, if she's got through that, then I can too. I think there's a lot of um, – that's why we talk and tell our stories, isn't it? That's true. That's true. And we are storytellers at heart and that's the one thing that has connected humankind since the beginning of time is our ability to tell stories however it comes through music, through through books, through mm. through stories, um, you know, through through our own history, oral histories, all of those things. It's it's what we do. So I, mm. I, I don't know. There's a lot of books out there. I didn't want to write a bad one, but um hopefully I wrote one that, that a couple of people might want to read. I'll read it. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, no Joe. I'll have to come back and, and I can I can come and punish you about it again. But I must admit, I'm a bit I'm a bit sick of myself. Like I've been living in my own head for the last six months, and um, I'm I'm done with me. Time to mm. time to do some other stuff. I think, um, and and that's a big challenge too, because I think we sat with ourselves for the last two years in lockdown in Melbourne, especially. And um, it'll be nice to go and do some other things after this. Yes, I agree. I'm, and it's what I love to do on this show is to learn about other people. And so let's get to our first guest, because one of the people I would say who's had an indelible impact on not just Melbourne, but our country and the incredibly important and compassionate work of advocacy for asylum seekers and refugees um, who come to Australia. His name is Con Karapanajatidis. He's the founder and CEO of the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. And I'm thrilled to welcome him to Broad Radio. Hi there, Con. Hi, good morning. Thank you so much, Joe. Thank you, Miff. And I'm coming to you from Wurundjeri land. And Miff, I remember when I wrote my memoir, I spent most most of it just sobbing and crying. <laughs> it was such. So I'm just listening to you, shaking my head, going, um, I couldn't wait to get out of my body after finishing it. But God, it is a cathartic process. I can't wait to read your memoir. Oh, thank you, thank you, Con. And I was interested to talk to you actually about that about 
how much you know your memoir was was very very open and and very raw in parts in fact you even went back to your editor at one point and said no put that back in when it was mm. it was it was deemed to be perhaps um you know uh, maybe too confronting for some readers um what made you want to tell your story in such a, such an open way I think I grew up carrying so much shame. I think I grew up, I grew up in a little country town called Mount Beauty. Parents were migrants, grandparents were refugees. They came with nothing. I experienced a lot of racism as a kid in a little country town, a lot of bullying through high school. And that shame became my narrative and my story about the sort of person that I am and the sort of treatment I deserve. And I just thought, by the time I got to 18, I thought I was unlovable and undeserving of, of love and affection and acceptance, that it had to be conditional. And I carried that shame all the way through into my 40s where I never felt like I was enough. And I think we often take our traumas and they become the soundtrack to our lives. That is, no matter what other people are telling us, we start to define ourselves by our deepest hurt. And I wanted to let it go. And I wanted, I thought if I'm gonna write a book, so I thought the same, who wants to read about my life? If I'm going to write a book, I want to let go of my own shame and trauma, but I also want to create a safe space for people to go, you're enough and that your trauma doesn't define you, your hope, your love, your potential, your kindness, your heart defines you. And that's why I wanted to be that vulnerable. It was terrifying. I was, because it was so scary to be so vulnerable, but it was the most powerful thing because once you let go of the things that shame and silence you, um, the power that has goes with it too. And suddenly you find oh a new a new story for yourself. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that. Oh God, Miff, I don't know if you're like me, but I feel like I just want to reach th- through the screen <laughs> and give you a huge yeah. hug because that complete openness to your own growth and sharing that with others is incredibly courageous. Absolutely. Well, I think a lot of the times as as men especially, we we're we're raised to be real men, tough men, man up. And that sense of masculinity is killing men. It's it's killing seven Australian men a day. It's killing an Australian woman a week. But most importantly, it's isolating men from intimacy and from love and from the most incredible connection to the women and children in their lives. And I also wanted to tell that story about as a man that we don't need more real men. We just need some good men. We just need gentle men. We need kind men. We need vulnerable men. And men want that too. We're, we're raised to be stoic and hard and it's like how's that working for us it's not and it's not working for our community and i also want to create that space and when i was a lot of people who bought my book when i was on tour were women saying i bought it for my my husband my partner my brother hoping that they too might know it's okay to say i'm not okay and i need help please and i want that to be a really important message to men that you don't need to be strong and man up you just need to be you and being vulnerable and being open is actually what would draw the most beautiful people. And that was one of the greatest surprises. I remember in my 30s when I was like, oh, bugger this, I'm just going to start being who I am. I thought people would run a mile, and yet the more vulnerable I was as a man, the more it drew the best people into my life because people are looking for that too. When you think you're a hot mess and you start being <laughs> real with others, like people love authenticity and honesty. And, and I think the very things that we're taught as men and we're taught as people that will that will drive people away are actually the things that connect us to people, which is our shared fragility and insecurity and the understanding that we're all just doing the best we can in a really tough world. And 
imagine if we started from a place of shared compassion and kindness to each other, mm, yeah. uh, how much different a society yeah. we might have. Amazing. People love a hot mess, Miff. Hot messes <laughs> of the world unite. And and we are all coming we are all coming out of the woodwork and we don't live perfect lives and and, and life didn't necessarily turn out, you know, exactly how we, we were we were told it would and all of those things. And I think there's a real reckoning with the structures of society that, that exist to, to to kind of remind us that we haven't made it or we've failed or we're not good enough. And I think I think our generation in particular has been one that is starting to really overturn those ideas and 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 if it's through our writing i think that's really important and and i love that you're doing you did that con i really do thank you thank you how how then when you talk about your shame and uh, and um your lack of sense of self and you know how Mm. it took you so long um Mm. to right into your 40s to really accept yourself but you established Asylum Seeker Resource Centre when you were 28. So how did that journey inform your decision to create an organisation that would support yeah. people who came to this country? Yeah, I remember being at 18 and kind of, you know, you know, thinking I really wanted the world to kind of swallow me whole and going, um, I'm either going to, I, I, I made this decision, which was if I don't find a way to give love and share love, I'm not going to last. I'm not going to make it. And so I decided that if I didn't think I was deserving of love, that one of the ways I could kind of meet love halfway was to go out there and give the love that I had in my heart. And so when I was 18, I started volunteering. I started working in a homeless men's shelter, then volunteering at the children's hospital on my Sundays with very special kids and outreaching on the streets of Melbourne, supporting, you know, um, people who were young people who were sex working on the streets of St Kilda when I was like 20 years of age running support groups for male survivors of incest when I was 20. And when it came to setting up the ASRC, it was again an extension of that same journey about, in Greek culture, we have a term called philoxenia, which is love of the stranger, the understanding that um, freedom and safety is just a lottery. And at any moment, it could be us seeking the safety and welcome as a stranger. And when I started the ASRC, it was about recognising that when people came seeking asylum as refugees to this country, that we had closed our hearts and doors to them. And this really resonated deeply with me because my grandparents were refugees. My parents came with nothing. I was the first to even go to high school in my family. So I came from a generation of struggle and adversity. And I didn't want to see others struggle. I don't like seeing people left behind. And and it was a moment in time, the year before, I had just lost my father suddenly at 27. And again, I wanted, to, I wanted the world to stop. I wanted not to be here. And... But I know my father raised me to, to be the man and person that he never got a chance to be. He was the most incredible person. But my dad had to leave school at the age of nine to go and work the fields for his poor family. And he dreamt of being what I got to become, you know, a lawyer and to do what I loved. And I think for me, being proud of where you come from, but understanding the gifts of what you have and making the most of it. And so for me, it was about, well, I'm going to take the sacrifices of my mom and dad and I'm gonna make a difference and I'm gonna make it to people that are the most unwelcomed and unwanted in this country because of the most courageous and extraordinary people I've ever met mm. are refugees. Think about the bravery of that, of, of crossing sea and land to save your family. Like they're heroes. And um, I've ever since I've been blessed for the last 21 years to do this work. Yeah, it's extraordinary to me that you would, I love the way you described that, to cross sea and land to save your family. Mm. They absolutely are heroes. Um, 
So tell us just very, for people who aren't aware of ASRC, the work that you do and some of the stories that you must hear from the people that you work with. Yeah. So I started this place 21 years ago, set it up in eight weeks as a TAFE class project with a group of kids I was teaching at the time. Over the last 21 years, we've helped more than 30,000 people. Most Australians don't know that when people seek asylum as refugees from places like just last week, we were helping refugees from Ukraine. Many people are left without healthcare, none can access Centrelink, many aren't allowed to work. And over the last 21 years, my work has been everything from, you know, we provide a health service, a legal service, employment, education, food banks. But most of my work over the last 21 years, the stories that really sit with me are probably um, the most, they're probably too graphic to be sharing on a podcast, honestly, but the, but the stories that really sit with me are getting little children out of detention centres, children that would have died in detention centers, um, reuniting families who hadn't seen each other in more than a decade, getting people their freedom after spending 10 years locked up in places like Nauru and Papua New Guinea. Um, what it means when you see someone finally get their freedom and their safety and their security and the way in which it just changes the world uh, is something so precious and extraordinary. Um, Con, how do you cope with the idea though that Australians seem very comfortable with the fact that that we leave people in limbo for such yeah. a long time what does that say about us and the type of community that we are it's, to me it's as if we're just there's a whole bunch of us who are you know both governments are guilty of it who are happy just to let people fester without a future and and we know the detrimental effects of that um what does that say about us yeah, I think it's a, there's a complex answer. I think part, we have an issue of racism in this country. And I just have to name that because we only have to look at what's happening to First Nations people still. We just had NAIDOC week and, you know, we still have, you know, almost 100% of young people in Northern Territory that are detained are First Nations. We still have half of Indigenous men my age that even make it to my age. So we've got a long road to go there. Look, I think Australia's mm. a racist country, but Australia is also a compassionate and welcoming country too. And I think... What I found is that when you actually talk to most Australians and equip them with the stories, the facts, and talk about values, about what if it was your family, what do you think families deserve when they're fleeing for their lives, most Australians are compassionate, most Australians are welcoming. And in fact, every poll shows that most Australians are willing to welcome and support more refugees to Australia. I think what's get lost within that is we are told we have no choice but to be cruel and what happens instead of humanizing refugees is we've demonized them. And so the very heroes of the story have become the villains of the story. And I think once we start engaging people back into their hearts and their values, I think most Australians end up having a very different conversation. And you saw that with the Biloela family. What was it about that family that cut through to so many Australians where they wanted them desperately to be allowed to stay? You had a story that people could relate to and a family that was humanized. I have thousands of those families every day. It's just no one's telling their story in most mainstream media. What we're hearing is about borders and danger and risk. And yet when you look at what's happening to Ukraine, we've opened our hearts so beautifully. And it's like, why aren't we doing that all the time? What is it about what's happening there? And that's where the race issue comes in. That it's a lot easier for us to feel safe to welcome white refugees than it might be to welcome refugees from other places of the, of the world. And I think I'm hopeful and optimistic because I think most people are good in this country and most Australians are kind and compassionate. And I've seen that for 21 years. 
the incredible support of people. But what we need is leadership, and we've had very little of it for the last 21 years on refugees. Instead, we've had division and fear. But I think the last election shows you people are tired of that, and people want something compassionate and something humane. And I'm really hopeful and optimistic. Things haven't changed yet, but I'm actually really hopeful that, that we can create some generational change that won't suddenly be rolled back if we have another change of government. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, been, I think, concerning that um, policy has been so cruel. And in our name, I don't know, as an Australian, I kind of go, I, didn't, I don't want us as a nation to be known as this kind of country. Um, so there's a lot of work still be still to be done uh connor you are you optimistic that we're going to head down the right path and that we'll be able to be a nation that we can be proud of as far as how we treat the most vulnerable people on this planet i, I am optimistic but it really requires like everyone listening to this it requires us to be actively engaged in our democracy like there's this elation of seeing the end of nine years of morrison and co but whether we're going to get the promises that the albanese government has made into a reality, not just on refugees, but on violence against women, closing the gap, climate change. It is gonna demand us to hold our elected representatives to account. So for refugees right now, it's putting pressure on the government to go, okay, you promised you would let 19,000 people who've been found to refugees permanently stay. What are you waiting for? You promised to safely get the 200 plus people left on the room in Papua New Guinea, who on the 19th of July entered their 10th year of detention. To Australia, while you find out how to resettle them, what are you waiting for? You promise to let people work, have healthcare, a safety net. At a time we have such massive skill shortages, why aren't we letting everyone seeking asylum contribute to our economy rather than be an object of charity in our economy? What are you waiting for? And so I'm optimistic, but it's not going to happen unless we keep the pressure up and go, we elected you because we want to change a kind of more progressive Australia. Now we expect you to deliver on that. What are you waiting for? Yeah. What mm. do they say they're waiting for, though, Con? Like, this is the frustrating bit. Are they are they terrified of the political ramifications that it will have on, on uh, you know, their, their, their popularity? I, I don't – I just yeah. – you're right. You're exactly right. What are they waiting for? Yeah. I, I think you've got good people who want to deliver on this, and but I think there's that fear of the power of the Murdoch media, the way in which someone like a Peter Dutton's opposition leader will leverage that the way that they will make this again about fear and division. But our conversations are, if there's ever a time to double down on your values, it's now. People elected you for these values. People elected you for these promises. How about trusting the Australian public? I think we've had decades of assuming, Morrison was the master of assuming the worst in people and pandering to that. And it worked for a time. Same, was, same with Tony Abbott, John Howard the same. I think Australians are tired of that. That's why you saw such a rise in independence and Greens is people want leaders that actually stand for something, not people that are willing to fall for anything. And I think now's the time for them to be brave and whether or not, you know, I think the next 12 months will be a real litmus test about delivering on that. So right now in the heart of winter, it's really tough because the Australian public thinks, oh, it's all changed. And we're like, actually, no one else is better off yet. Um, one family is, but there's even even the, the Bilawella family are still on temporary visas. Even they aren't permanently allowed mm. to stay here yet. At the moment, we've got just as many people locked up, just as many people without health care, without the right to work, without a safety net. We've got just as many people turning up homeless and hungry. And the only difference is, as the cost of everything triple, 
Um, as a charity, when we're the food bank, the pharmacy, the roof of their head for people, it's getting so much tougher, not just for us, but for charities across the board to keep our doors open while also facing another surge of COVID. So it's really challenging times. And I think the big message to the Australian public is please keep standing with our charity sector because we're the ones at the bottom of a cliff as people keep getting thrown off it at the moment until policy mm. changes. And, and don't close your hearts and keep holding your political leaders accountable because I am hopeful they're going to change this country for the better and that we are going to see under this government significant you know, positive progress around the treatment of refugees. But at the moment, nothing has changed. And we need to understand the difference between a promise and that promise being delivered and not be mm. complacent and comfortable until we see that change. Well, Con, um, thank you so much for the work that you do. Your passion and your optimism and your hope is truly inspirational. The way that you drive the ASRC um, with no government support, you're fiercely independent, which is incredible. Mm. Um, it's, it's just uh, incredibly inspiring. And I know that you make a huge difference to hundreds of families every year. You can still donate to ASRC, it's asrc.org.au. Um, even though their telethon is over, you can always donate. If you feel that you are able, that's a really good place to um, mm. uh, share a few of your dollars with them. Con, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much, Joe. Thank you, Mia, for so thank much you, being on your wonderful show. Thank you. Take care. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Thank you. Broad Radio. Talking inspo we love, info we need, and sharing more of us. Watch and listen live every Tuesday 9am Australian Eastern Daylight Savings Time at broadradio.com.au or find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube and LinkedIn at Broad Radio Oz. Talk to us live. Call on 1300 8 Broad. Catch up on demand anytime, anywhere, every time, everywhere. On the train, we'll be here. 2am existential crisis, <laughs> we've got you covered. Broad Radio. Here for more. Well, Miff, as I was saying earlier today, the show is a lot about who we are and what has made us who we are. And we're talking about Melbourne, particularly there with Con from ASRC and someone who has contributed this exploration of Melbourne and what makes us tick is uh, a woman who has created a beautiful book and it's an exhibition as well. It's called Daughters of Melbourne and her name is Marie Coote. Hi there, Marie. Hi, Joe. Hi, Miff. Lovely Hi, to Marie. talk to you both. So, Marie, Daughters of Melbourne is a project that you've created mm -hmm. where you have 
looked at this city and it's no different cities all around the world are the same really yep. and seen a stark absence of statues that are about women and the pioneers that have made this city and gone oh that's not right i need to do something about that absolutely and you know this began joe over 20 years ago with my first book, which was a general history of Melbourne. And I thought I'd add a chapter on beauty. And so I grabbed my camera and skipped around the grid, taking photographs of our beautiful statues and realized there were no women. I found Frances Joan of Arc and Britain's um, nurse uh, Cavell and an Italian nun and a nymph and a nude and a mermaid, etc. Goddess Diana. <laughs> Um, but not one single real actual live Melbourne woman. And then I heard a rumour that there was a half figure of Mary Gilbert, who was the, um, the first and only white woman on Pascoe Faulkner's, um, John Pascoe Faulkner's boat of colonial invasion in 1835. Uh, only white girl in town, arrived pregnant, gave birth two days later. Um, anyway, I found her underneath the polystyrene sheets and uh, fertiliser tins in the... Um, Fitzroy Gardens hothouse shed. No uh, way. Yes, yes. She's brought out when the petunias are in bloom. And uh, <laughs> I mean, it's, I, was, I was shocked and I've written this into four editions of the Melbourne book ever since over those past 22 years and nothing's changed. So I thought, look, I have to do a new volume just on this. Um, in 2006, I think, uh, Kylie and Melba were added to the wrong end of the docklands in a windblown you know, desolate pier position uh, where no one would ever see them. Uh, but the points moot anyway because they were removed a handful of years later, Kylie into storage and Nellie Melba back up to Coldstream to the property up there uh, in a reconfiguration of the Docklands again, you know. Mm. Um, in 2007, Lady Gladys Nichols was added up near Parliament House, Aboriginal uh, activist and social reformer, a fantastic, much-loved figure who devoted her life to the nourishment and care of um, Arab, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women who'd been displaced into the inner city suburbs. And uh, and so she's there. So the tally, I'll just give you this now, is one and a half, okay? so yeah. half One and a half statues yeah. of women in half. Melbourne yeah. from... We're, we're... But we do have a couple of um, uh, of great uh, Olympic athletes around the MCG, we I believe. We do. Betty Cuthbert. We do. Yes, not a Melbourne girl. Shirley Strickland. Yeah, not, not a Melbourne, Melbourne girl either. No. And no, recently no. we had Taylor Harris added and Nova Paris, both of whom, Nova's from Darwin, Taylor's from Brisbane. Interestingly, when Taylor's bronze was installed, uh, a certain North Melbourne coach went off his head apoplectic at the, at the uh, quote, ludicrous and, quote, mystifying addition of a statue to this sportswoman, which in some way apparently undermined or demeaned his own statue, which is outside some footy ground in South Australia. And you just think, are you kidding me, guys? There's room for everybody, you know, like <laughs> seriously? So uh, apart from that, um, Taylor Harris's bronze, um, which was, you know, um, touted as being a fabulous bronze, blah, 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 is no longer there because apparently, guess what? It's not bronze. So it either was or it wasn't, but it's not bronze now and it can't handle the weather. So it's been removed <gasps> into storage for repair. And I understand it will end up in Brisbane where her, you know, where she grew up. Um, 
And, you know, this issue, it, it really does, it's not unimportant. People think statues are expensive and useless and vainglorious and whatever. Um, but they are a part of our storytelling and they are a part of our, our history and our family album, really. And um, if you leave certain people out of the family album over and over and over, you're going to either grossly discourage them uh, from a meaningful input, you know, or make them really pissed off, one or the other. <laughs> and so I, I just think it's just not on. Also, statues are very visible part of our historic storytelling because they're in our streets, they're in our, you know, in our local towns and in, in our environment, and they reflect back to us what we find is valuable, you know, and women aren't there. So what, mm. guess why, you know, men don't think women are valuable, yeah. you know, and I think um, Con alluded to the stats on domestic violence. A woman's killed a week here in Melbourne in domestic violence episode. 10 are hospitalised each day in the same way and much worse for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women. Um, I think that if you had women on the grid on every other corner, um, that it would be edifying, you know, and civilising and elevate the position and the contribution of women, not for what they look like, but for the works that they've done, for the contributions that they've made to uh, Melbourne's culture, and commerce and community, you know. I mean, it's, it's like a, a coral reef, you know. Everyone lays down a part of the bed of the reef and you, can, you build on that. Everyone builds on what everyone contributes. And the contributions of these 50 women that I have in this book, I think, are critical to our culture. And I really want to celebrate them because I think it's just not on. It's, in fact, lamentable that we don't acknowledge them. And Marie, there's the list is extraordinary of of women, and there are so many that should be honoured and have yet to be honoured in any kind of public forum. Um, how how easy was it to collate this list, given how many women have been ignored in history, <laughs> or how difficult, well, I guess, to find to find information about these women because of that fact? I had um, lots of heroes of mine, obviously, that I wanted to include straight away, like Wendy Saddington, who's on the cover fantastic blues howler that she is from the 60s and even Princess Panda. Between Jermaine Greer and Princess Panda, you have the yin and yang of my girlhood um, and I love that um, dichotomy, you know, because they all inform each other um, across the decades and Chrissy um, Amphlett from the Divinals, like me, was a big fan of Princess Panda and used to watch her on television and wonder how she did what she did. You know, we're discovering that sexual power that Panda had. She had some kind of currency and it was fascinating to square-eyed kids in the 60s. Um, but, yeah, I, I just basically went out and thought, who has really moved the game on, you know, whether it's Zelda Deprano or or um, Olive Zakharov or... or Gladys Nichols, as I say, Henrietta Dugdale is a fantastic woman. Ellis Rowan is a wonderful, you know, I would ask your listeners to think, do they know more? Would they recognise Frida Kahlo more than they would Ellis Rowan or Vali Myers or Wendy Saddington? And if so, we got a problem because mm. Frida Kahlo has had no impact whatsoever on this place in which we live. She's just been iterated and iterated and iterated and iterated and iterated. 
so that she, uh, the opposite has happened to these women. They've been photocopied out like a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy that gets fainter and fainter and fainter and disappears from history because, uh, and it's, it's not an accident, it's quite deliberate. Um, a lot of historians and gatekeepers of culture who are men um, are attracted to men like them, men of power and position, and the doors open for those people. The doors don't open unless you kick them down. Um, to other people, and that includes, you know, black and brown people, gay and gay mm. people, disabled people. Doesn't matter. So there's a, a, a um, you know, there's a kind of a, a club that that's okay with getting visibility. Everyone else is like Con was saying before. Um, until you put a face to the Biloela family, they're invisible and they're mm. easy to ignore. Um, and until you put a face to these women. Um, and this brings me to another point about visibility. Um, there is a sculptural tribute to the fantastic Olive Zakharov in Port Melbourne, but you would not know that because it's three concrete blocks. So when you look down the street, you see three concrete blocks and then you, you, you unsee them because they're very, you know, unremarkable. Uh, and so you have no idea that, that this woman who was a, a, a towering humanist, she fought for gay rights, children's rights, women's rights. She fought against domestic violence. She fought against nuclear warfare. She, she was a really towering humanist. She was a member of parliament. And we obviously deemed her life so valuable that we built a tribute, sculptural tribute to her in Port Melbourne, but you would never know that mm. there was a woman there. You'd never know. You'd look down the other street in uh, Bay Street and you'll see a bronze of Wilbraham Lyadette. And you think to yourself, hmm, important man once was here. But you don't think important woman was once here because the three concrete blocks give you no hint. Until you're very, very close, you must be, you have to go and investigate and it will, in the concrete are imprinted, you know, I'm not anti-abstract sculpture, but I really think this should be specific mm. and figurative and bronze and lasting, you know, like it is for guys. Yeah. You, you look at them, you can tell. They were an explorer or a military bloke mm. or a poet or whatever, or a footballer. You can tell when you look at them. But, um, you know, that's not the case with these generic or abstract works that are, are, are given to women. So why do you think we're not given our bodies and, and our, our, our shapes and our, our humanity uh, in sculptural form? What's that to, about? We have, to de- we have to demand it. And I think there's a, a, um, a terrific sculpture, but again, abstract, of the the Great Petition, it's called, and it's the 30,000 signatures of the suffragettes achieved, which was, can I say, a global first that women could um, vote and stand for parliament. It's an international first. Uh, instead of seeing a figure of Henrietta Dugdale or Vita Goldstein or Bella Guerin or better still, all three, we see an abstract um, white scroll and it's quite a nice object but it's not telling our citizens, hey, we had these women here who were so advanced, so courageous, so determined, so um, intelligent, so applied. They devoted their lives to getting the vote for women. You know, we don't see that. I, I think it's, um, <laughs> to me, something resonates in that, Marie, in that often 
particularly when you look at community organisations that are effectively run by women, right, and huge amounts of volunteers that work really hard to make a difference in whether it's, you know, at your school with the PNF through to the footy club through to larger organisations, right? And there's always this sort of feel like things just happen, things just, you know, massive movements just kind of emerge and the people that actually make them happen aren't sort of recognised because perhaps it's women's role to do that stuff like we're supposed to just absorb it as well as run the family rather than these big sort of leadership roles in those sort of harder versions of it and those sort of ancient versions of leadership roles where you'd stand at the front of a ship and you know lead a kind of expedition i'll tell you which one is easier yeah Well, I'll tell you, I was I was president of the Parents Association, and I would happily lead an expedition through Absolutely. foreign lands. I, you know, I've had the corner office in my career, and I'm telling you now, it's much easier than looking after the kids at home. Yeah, it just is. It's a doddle, absolute doddle. So, I mean, look, unfortunately, it has been we've been sold a pup that um, mm. women don't need acknowledgement; they just love to do it. They just love yeah. to do that stuff. They do yeah, it anyway. Yeah, and I say to that, that's rubbish. Mm. That's BS mm. completely. Men love to do the power role. And even if they weren't paid, they'd do it anyway. So, mm. um, and when I was putting this book together, some of the women said to me, oh, but I'm not important. I haven't done anything great. Don't oh. write about me. I'm not a star. I'm not worthy, blah, blah, blah. And I said, look, after an, uh, hearing a bit of this, I said, I have to say I'm exhorting women please, to take responsibility for your achievements Mm. because you are robbing the next generation of women of great role models and they need it more than anything. And today we have an epidemic of depression and anxiety and God knows what. And I think, I really think, I mean, my generation, I seem to have around me people like, as I say, Jermaine Greer and God knows who, who were demonstrating to me that you could you know take on the world and if any of my bosses when i was a young girl had a go at me i would we were all really mouthy back then we would holler we would yell we would you know and i feel we've lost a lot of that and and this generation seems to be um self chilling um their um defiance Uh, they've got a lid on it a bit i don't know if it's social media Mm. I don't know if they don't feel supported in community. I don't know if they don't feel they have those role models there, you know, around them. And I think if we could see women in our streets that were not generic advertising billboards, not generic nudes and mermaids, but specific women who have actually done great work, you know, um, be they artists, musicians, be it, be it Lil Whiteman from La Louvre or, or, or Ellis Rowan, I mean, be it whoever, um, that they've actually gone for, and, and every woman in this book just had to um, woman up and have a go. No, they had to kick a door down. I love it. <laughs> no, they had to kick a door down. I nobody love it. Gave it oh, it's nobody great. gave it to them on a plate. Oh, Marie, thank you so much. I I feel inspired today to woman up, absolutely. And, yes, you're exactly right that we need the role models and now's the time to celebrate our achievements. I love the book. Look at that. It's such a beautiful beautiful book too. The graphics and Mm. and the the drawings that you've done as well, are. uh, it's worth it for that alone. It's it's brilliant. Content and imagery, beautiful. 
and I'm going to actually, I'm going to say this. I am uh, planning a tattoo, which was going to be of Frida Kahlo because she's yes. born on the same birthday as uh -huh. me. And I have been quite inspired by her. But now I think I need to perhaps explore some Australian women, maybe. Yes. I love that, that as would a be challenge fantastic. to myself. That's brilliant. <laughs> That's yeah. Thank you so much, Marie. Sorry, what was that? Well, for me, it's all about the meaning, uh, making meaning mm. in this place I live in, you know, and I love yeah. Frida Kahlo too. But mm. look at what we've got yeah. here. We've got fantastic women here and you too Amazing. as well. And if I could have doubled the, doubled the thickness of it, there's so many more fantastic it's women who could it's go true. in. It's true. Yeah. Thank you so much, Marie. Do get the book. Thank I you. absolutely love it, Daughters of Melbourne. Thanks for joining us, Marie, today. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks Marie. Now, Miv, we've gone from people who've come from around the world. We've spoken about the Daughters of Melbourne. Now yep. I need very quickly to understand how you learned about yourself on Who Do You Think You Are? Well, it's really interesting. It, look, it was incredible and, and a really great honour. Um, I learnt some very difficult stuff about my great-grandmother who was not known at all in our family never never spoken about she didn't even have a name necessarily and I, I learned some really difficult stuff about her life and um how rough it was for her from age seven she was institutionalized basically sent into a life of servitude slash slavery I think um and really struggled and struggled difficultly and and had a lot of really awful things happen to her but you know thinking of this book you know she too a, a daughter of of melbourne and she survived somehow managed to survive regardless of all the obstacles against her and getting to have that experience and to learn about her was such an honor and then to be able to tell her story when she was at the time voiceless um that was mm. such a privilege and her story is not uncommon there are there are thousands and thousands of these women who have never had their stories told and and so that for me was just such a huge honor and I found out about a great auntie who also probably could be in the Daughters of Melbourne although she wasn't born in Melbourne um I found out I had a great auntie who was an Australian pop star in the 60s who again her story her, her name's April Byron you can look her up she um her story's been erased essentially from from contemporary pop music history I didn't even know about her and I know a lot about music and she um, has recorded with the Bee Gees. John Farnham was her beau for, for quite some time. They toured the country together. Um, and I, it was just astounding to learn about her. But she's got these fabulous daughters who live in America um, who have the best names ever, Cinderella and Candy. And they're... <laughs> and they're <laughs> And they're actually their their daughter is a scriptwriter or a screenwriter, and, and they're actually coming up with her life story to to be taken to television. So, I do think that now we're finally starting to learn about these women who were ignored for so long, or even mm. even as Marie was talking, you know, they're photocopied out. They just disappear. Yeah. If the stories aren't there, if we're not still discussing them now, they they disappear. And it's it's our job to keep that all alive on so many levels. Absolutely, because it perpetuates that notion that women don't contribute. Yes. So people go, oh, there aren't any stories to tell. So, you know, but that's because they haven't been shared and, they, as you say, have been erased. And so then it skews our notion of what actually history is and what has what are the stories out there, you know. Yeah, yeah, um, exactly. So um, has it shaped who you are? Has it changed how you see yourself? Um, absolutely. It's given me... It's given me a lot of impetus to to 
I, look, I feel like I'm standing on the shadows of, of women with great resilience and I owe it to them to to live um, a life that, that they never could and that they never mm. got to enjoy and and to, like I said, to tell their stories to support the more vulnerable in society and, um, yeah, it's really it's really kind of pushed me in that direction and I know that I've, t- I've spoken to you about it before but I was already in the process of becoming a foster carer and, and I think that having learnt about my 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 grandmother's exp- great grandmother's experience um you know it's it's pushing me further to to care for for others and and to help where I can because you know she was never afforded that opportunity so mm. yeah it's it was I, I I I would never know any of this stuff because I'm not I'm not I wouldn't have looked it up you know and our family wouldn't know and I think it's it's been it's going to have a huge impact on me and them. So a great honour. Amazing. Oh, I love that. Um, Miff, thank you so much for joining us on Broad Radio again. Of course, um, we can't wait for your memoir and Speaks and Specs is coming again. So that's starting in a couple of weeks. It's like, you know, that that informed a lot of us. That's television that we have so much affection for and great nostalgia for. It's thrill- It's thrilling that it's back. Oh, it's it's such a joy and that's the thing in telly, you don't get jobs that you love as much as this mm. and when we got the opportunity to do it again, it's like, yeah, why not? Why wouldn't why I? Not? It's fun. It's actually fun. But also the nature of the show has always been to bring new artists that people don't know into the into the forum and into public consciousness and, you know, other more established artists that might not be in the zeitgeist so much, you know, mm. like it's and from, from different musical styles and um and huge diversity and you can bring them all together and I think I think the best thing about the show is that it everyone can be so different in so many ways, but we all come together via music and, and, oh, and that's yeah. how we tell our stories and that's been the great joy of doing Speaks and Specs. Yeah. Oh. It is, it is one of the greatest things about music, as you absolutely say there. And I have a little note here that says you're looking smoking hot in the promo as well. So oh. you're ticking all the boxes there, Miff. <laughs> oh, it's funny because we went, we went into a dodgy nightclub in, in Melbourne, which everyone would know of because you would have attended at some point. Um, it's not dodgy. It's great. It's, it's very late night. Yaya's in Collingwood. Oh, so yes. we did our photo shoot yeah. in Yaya's and, and it was like – it, the, I think the photo shoots are almost like me and my two husbands are looking at you across the bar and we like your vibe type photos. <laughs> I want to party with them. Oh, my God. We're a bit, it's a bit creepy because we're a bit too old to be doing that, but I loved it. It was such fun, such fun. No, it's the best. Um, Miff, thanks so much. It's always a joy to chat with you. I love your insight and I can't wait to explore more of you when your book comes out. And, oh. yeah, thanks for joining us on Broad Radio oh, again. Thank you, Joe. Always a pleasure. I love doing this with you. Of course, we're back with more Bradio. Broad Radio. We're Bradio. <laughs> back with more Broad Radio next week. We'll see you then. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.